People who believe in a little God and a little gospel sing little songs. We believe in the great God and the great gospel, so we sing great songs. That is our natural response. As the children are exiting, would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you this morning. Our hearts full of joy and, and gratitude. These truths that we have been singing and, and, and allowing to fill our heart and, and, Lord willing, filling the halls of heaven with pleasure and joy. They thrill us because they remind us of Christ. They remind us of our salvation. They remind us of your greatness and that you have shared your greatness with us. You have, you have deemed it worthy according to your will to share yourself with us, not because we were deemed worthy by ourselves, but because you have chosen to make us worthy. We who are unworthy have been made worthy by Christ. And we celebrate that this morning. As we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would see Jesus Christ just flooding our hearts through the pages of Scripture and that we would get to know him better so that we might be more obedient and be better worshipers of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as the Apostle John, who is the, the writer of our text this morning, John 10, 11 through 21, but he also wrote to the church in his very first epistle. And he said this in 1 John 4, verse 1. You don't have to turn there, just listen. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then just two chapters earlier, he said in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, if we put those two verses together, 1 John 4.1, 1 John 2.18, we can put together kind of a short definition of an Antichrist. First of all, an Antichrist is demonically empowered, meaning the real motivation and the real drive behind an Antichrist is from the spiritual realm. We also could say that this is a human being who is the channel for this demonic power. John calls them false prophets. They're human beings. We also could see that they have great influence over those who believe themselves to be Christians, over the apostate church, we would call it. These are false prophets to whom people just flock and flood to them. We also see that they could trick, not to the point of taking away salvation, but they can trick, they can fool true believers into seeking a, a false intimacy with God that, that's sort of a shortcut to high-level spirituality. That's why there's so much warning toward the end of the New Testament for the church to not be led astray. And then we can also see from those two verses that an Antichrist is by definition a usurper of Jesus Christ, of his position, of his authority, meaning that an Antichrist isn't someone who talks openly of hating Christ. An Antichrist is someone who talks openly of speaking for Christ or being Christ, or representing Christ, or giving us Christ's words outside of Scripture. And that's why it's so diabolical, because an Antichrist is very similar to Christ. And so if we put all that together, an Antichrist is a demonically empowered human being who operates as a false prophet to have great influence over the apostate church and some influence over true believers as a false representation of Christ himself. And by the millions and by the billions, people will listen to someone claiming to have heard from Christ and to speak his words for him. Well, according to the Apostle John, that person is an antichrist. And this is the case, as we've been seeing in the books by Sarah Young, Jesus Calling and Jesus Always. We've been working our way through John chapter 10 and 11 to see that the Jesus of Jesus Calling is not the Jesus of the Bible. And it is because church attenders and many claiming to be Christians want to flock so quickly to easy spirituality when someone else just gives you a straightforward version of supposedly what God wants you to know. It's because of that tendency to jump into error and to jump into deception that we're using this series to take a very open and public stand against this poison. 
Sarah Young is claiming to speak the words that she's heard from Christ himself. But as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, her Jesus is creepy. Her Jesus is effeminate. Her Jesus is much more like a new age channeled spirit than the Savior from Scripture. And as a matter of fact, in our text today, in which we hear the actual voice of Christ, the actual voice of Christ completely contradicts what the Jesus of Jesus Calling says. For example, in the month of January, in the Jesus Calling devotional book, she says, Let your weakness be a door to my presence. And this is supposedly Jesus talking. Let your weakness be a door to my presence. Well, first of all, in our text last week, Jesus said, he is the door to salvation, not my weakness. But this pictures Jesus as passive and as hopeful. In fact, she continues, and I've read this quote before, but it's, it's worth revisiting. She says, shimmering hues of radiance tap gently at your consciousness, seeking entrance. Now, this is portraying a Jesus who just hopes and prays that we'll let him in. Actually, we're going to see this morning that Jesus doesn't hope. He has certainty about who he has chosen, who his sheep are, precisely who his people are. In the month of October, she writes, You need to look beyond the flux of circumstances and discover me, meaning Jesus, discover me gazing lovingly back at you. In other words, it's my job to find Jesus, and I really hope that I can figure him out. But John chapter 10 presents Jesus in exactly the opposite way. He's, he's actively seeking his people. He's going after them. Jesus is the shepherd who actively enters the sheepfold of the sheep. He actively calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before his sheep. He leads them out of sin and into the kingdom. And we're going to see even more about this active Shepherd Jesus Christ in verses 11 through 21. It's not you need to discover me gazing lovingly back at you. It's that Jesus has come and found you. He's come to you. In the month of September, Sarah writes, and this is supposedly Jesus. I have a hard time actually saying this out loud. It's so ridiculous. Teaching you would be simple. If I negated your free will or overwhelmed you with my power. However, I love you too much to withdraw the godlike privilege I bestowed on you as my image bearer. First of all, the notion of Jesus wanting to be godlike is completely false. It plays into a New Age philosophical idea that all human beings are evolving spiritually into their own gods. Being godly is to imitate God. Being godlike is to be God, and there is a difference. But, but even allowing for the misuse of that phrase, let's just say that she didn't mean to say it that way. Jesus is basically saying, isn't it great that I've let you have all the power to choose me, that I haven't overwhelmed you with my power? Well, our text today is going to say, I have chosen you, and I have overwhelmed you with my power. It's exactly the opposite. So what does the actual voice of Christ say? Well, last week we looked at the first half of the last part of a long sermon that Jesus gave. And this sermon was preached to Jews among whom there were the rebellious fraudulent leaders of Israel who had rejected the blind man that Jesus had just healed in John chapter 9. And now in this last part of his message, he began using a a parable-like word picture or scene. It's not exactly a parable, but it has the same sort of quality of mystery and vagueness to it, such that those who know Christ can understand it, and those who don't know Christ, it's a mystery to them. They can't comprehend it. And in this picture, we saw various characters. We saw the, the sheepfold, the sheep pen, which represents Israel and Judaism. We saw the sheep in the sheepfold, generally speaking, of all the Israelites, all of the individuals in Israel and in Judaism. We saw the thief and the robber who comes in the night to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. He's also called a stranger. These are the false shepherds with wicked intentions. And we saw the main character who is the shepherd. Unlike the thieves and robbers who break into Judaism, the shepherd comes in through the door because he is eminently and singularly qualified to come through the door as the Son of God, since the shepherd is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. 
But then we saw that the shepherd is also the door of the sheepfold. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way out of false legalism and the only way into a right relationship with God, forgiveness of sin, and true faith in the one true living God. And then finally, we saw the true sheep. The true sheep are those who hear the voice of the shepherd and follow after him. They listen to no other false voices, but only the leading voice of the shepherd. And we saw that the the real Jesus calling was the moment of salvation when the Holy Spirit of his own initiative spoke to your heart of Christ and you believed. And according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you were given the gift of faith to then respond to that call. Well, now Jesus is going to continue building on this parable-like word picture, this scene that he's set up. And we have more characters Now the shepherd becomes the good shepherd. We also see a hired hand who is not the good shepherd, not like the good shepherd at all. We're going to see a wolf who comes to steal the sheep. We're going to see other true sheep, sheep who aren't in that sheepfold of Judaism and Israel, but who already belong to Christ. But then the picture, it just takes a notch up. It takes a step up. Now the picture is going to be elevated and uplifted to the very halls of heaven, where the plan of salvation for mankind was initiated by the Father, and we find out that the Father is the one behind the entire story. But the clear focus of this story is the good shepherd, and Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd in in even clearer terms now, a, a generous shepherd who lavishes gifts on his sheep. And I think that would be a useful way for us to organize our thoughts this morning. I want you to just point out three gifts that the good shepherd gives to his sheep. Three gifts that the good shepherd gives to his sheep, and we'll begin those in a moment, but let's go ahead and just set the foundation by reading the text. John 10, beginning in verse 11, he's continuing now with this word picture. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was once again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, Jesus has elevated the picture now. Now the shepherd has become the good shepherd. And what is it that's made the difference? Well, the difference is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says this repeatedly, verses 11, 15, 17, 18. He's very clear about this, that that is the important factor for him to understand for him to to impart to us, rather. So the first gift that the good shepherd gives is the gift of the shepherd's life. The gift of the shepherd's life. Now, generally speaking, a, a good shepherd risks his life for his sheep. And we have a great example, certainly in Scripture, the boy David, first as a as shepherd of actual sheep, he risked his life for his flock against bears and lions, even aggressively pursuing these animals when they had taken a lamb and rescuing the lamb from the mouth of the predator. We see that in 1 Samuel 17. But just as certainly, he also risked his life for a flock of people, people who would be his nation, the nation of Israel, by fighting Goliath as well. And so we see that the good shepherd risks his life for the sheep. This is very often the picture that's used to describe Jesus here. This is the comparison that Jesus is putting his life on the line for the sheep. But can I say this? That's not what the text says. It doesn't say that Jesus is risking his life. To risk your life implies that you might get out of it alive. He's not risking his life. He's laying down his life. 
There's no risk here. It's already 100% certain. He lays down his life in line with the Father's will, according to 17 and 18. His death, which is coming in just a few chapters in John, is not the accidental death of a shepherd who found himself backed up against a cliff with three bears and, oh no, I'm going to lose my life. It wasn't an accidental death. It was an intentional death. And what does his death do? His death draws the sheep to himself because his sheep are sinners. They're unable to come to the presence of holy God and the good shepherd is laying down his life to purchase and redeem his sheep. And only Jesus can do this. Why is he called the good shepherd? Well, it's the idea of being the only one, of being the prototype, of being the only qualified one. And in fact, he uses the word good in very much the same way elsewhere in John that he uses the word true, that he is the true light in chapter 1, the true bread in chapter 6, the true vine in chapter 15. He's the only real version. He's the only prototype. As a matter of fact, this little preposition here, he lays down his life for the sheep. It can be translated on behalf of the sheep. This little preposition in John is always, with one exception, but is always used in a sacrificial context. It it refers to the death of Christ a half dozen times. Peter uses it to refer to his desire to give his life for Christ, or it's used of a man prepared to die for his friend. And in none of these instances does it speak of a death that's merely a good example. It is much more than that. It's a death on behalf of someone else. In other words, don't ever think that Jesus died on the cross just to say how much he loves you. He's not just dying to express love. He's not just dying to to be a good example. He's dying instead of you. He's dying on your behalf. Because his sheep are in mortal danger. They're under the judgment of God for sin. And the wages of sin is death and damnation. And the good shepherd says, I'll take that. I'll substitute for you. I'll take that rightful punishment to save the souls of his sheep. And so his his death is specifically for redemptive purposes. Now in verse 12, we get a contrast to the good shepherd. The hired hand. He's hired by the owner of the sheep to, to guard the sheep. It's very interesting. The, the, the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition written about the, the third century or so, and it was around for centuries and centuries, but it was finally written down. The Mishnah gives the law of the legal responsibility of a hired hand, that he must defend against one wolf, but two wolves is above and beyond the call of duty, and he can run. A very interesting little distinction there. But in verse 12... The hired hand won't even fight off one wolf. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Can I put it this way? The the wolf is the minimum minimum wage worker who says, you know what? Um, This is not worth it. Bye, I quit. I'm out of here. I'm not fighting a wolf for 10.95 an hour. That doesn't make any sense. I don't own the sheep. He has no skin in the game, so to speak. He has no vested interest. He runs because he has no attachment to the sheep. His interest is purely in his wages, and he has nothing personal to lose if he loses sheep. Now, don't be too hard on the old hired hand. I've heard whole sermons preached against this old hired hand. The the thieves and the robbers and the strangers, these are clearly wicked men with wicked intentions. The hired hand isn't necessarily wicked. He's just more committed to his own welfare than he is to the welfare of the sheep. That's it, and it's logical. Very often, the hired hand is interpreted as a religious leader who performs his duties well enough to get a paycheck, but not really taking the time or the effort to demonstrate genuine spiritual care for the sheep and certainly this would be a good lesson for pastors a good lesson for churches many churches spiritually languish under hired hands who are just kind of phoning it in and not really protecting and and teaching the sheep with the word of god and and we understand that but i think more likely the hired hand here is sort of like the gatekeeper of verse three he's just a generally unidentified character who helps fill in the story but in this case It goes a little bit further. The hired hand acts as what's called a foil. 
A foil in literature is a, is a character that is there only for one reason, and that is to be the, the opposite of the hero, to be a contrast, to say, see, the foil is terrible, but the hero is terrific. And so the hired hand won't protect against the wolf, but the good shepherd will. The good shepherd will protect his sheep. He goes all out for his sheep, all the way to the point of laying down his life for the sheep. He's in a category by himself. In fact, now we get to see that the good shepherd's devotion to his sheep is intimately connected to the love that God the Father has for him. Verses 17 and 18 Jesus says, and now he, he takes it out of the realm of the story and he tells us what the story is really about. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Now, it's not that God the Father withholds his love for Christ until he dies on the cross. It's not that Jesus earned the Father's love somehow. Instead, there is an eternal link of the love for the Father to the Son with the Son's unhesitating and unreserved obedience, the Son's complete dependence on the Father, his total abject humility to do what the Father has requested the willingness of Christ to bear the shame of a sinner, to be treated as if he is sin itself, according to 2 Corinthians 5, to receive the curse of God on sin. This demonstrates his beautiful character, his character of graciousness and obedience and humility. God loves him for this. God the Father adores the Son. And there's a sense of purpose for Christ laying down his life. He says, that I might take it up again. Now, this, that I might, this is a specific type of conjunction clause in Greek. It tells us that this is a purpose, not just the result. In other words, the death of Christ wasn't the finale, and then the resurrection sort of tacked on as a postscript. His resurrection was because of his death. His resurrection was the purpose of his death. And his resurrection led to his glorification, which led to the, the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which leads to the church age in which the believers in Jesus Christ are carrying out the great commission of Matthew 28 to do what? To find the other sheep of verse 16. And so it was always for that purpose. In fact, Jesus is very clear that this was always the plan. It was always God's plan to give Christ as a sacrifice for sin by means of the hands of sinful men. Listen to the prayer of the gathered believers in Jerusalem in Acts 4, beginning in verse 27. This is their prayer. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, was always the Father's plan. And the son submitted to this plan. And of course, classically, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so it makes sense in verse 18 that Jesus says, no one takes his life from him. No one takes his life. He's given it of his own accord. As a matter of fact, we have proof five times over that no one takes his life from him. People have been already trying unsuccessfully to murder Jesus for years now. In Matthew 2, verse 13, we find the, the record of Herod trying to murder Jesus as a young child and Joseph and Mary taking him to Egypt until Herod had died. And, and Herod killed all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity, two years old and under, in his effort to murder Jesus. And, and those precious babies really became the first martyrs, the, the first people ever to die for Jesus, to die for the sake of Christ. And we have a second attempt. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Luke 4, verse 9. In the same chapter, we have a third attempt in Nazareth, his own hometown. His own people, the people he grew up around, were so furious with his claim to be Messiah that they drove Jesus to the top of a cliff to throw him off, but he miraculously passed through their midst. 
There was a fourth attempt we just saw recently in John 8, verse 59, that the Jewish leaders tried to stone Jesus to death, but he miraculously escaped again. And now that Jesus is saying that he's the good shepherd, and now in just a few months time-wise, and in just a few verses text-wise, we're going to see another attempt. Look with me at verse 31. Here they are again. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So five attempts, five failures, making it very clear that Jesus is only going to die when he is good and ready to do so, when it is the Father's timing. And how poignant it is when Jesus says this charge, literally this commandment, I received from my Father. This is the total willing obedience of the Son. This is the functional subordination of willingly laying aside all the manifestations of his glory for a short time to be faithful all the way to death. This is the Jesus who is so humble and obedient that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, Jesus isn't just a shepherd. He is the shepherd, and he's not just the shepherd. He is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep. This is the gift of the shepherd's life. There's a second gift of the good shepherd. We might call this the gift of the shepherd's heart. The gift of the shepherd's heart. The the latest book craze is a book by Rachel Hollis, who was raised right here in good old Bakersfield. It's a book that just came out this year called Girl, Wash Your Face. And this thing is going great guns it's a new york times number one bestseller and it supposedly tells us what the key to happiness is by the way guess who publishes this thomas nelson who also publishes jesus calling they know a money maker when they see one rachel hollis is a successful entrepreneur she's a very popular public speaker as well and the, the book girl wash your face is a book for women to tell them to stop believing certain lies and i would even say it has some good and some useful advice as well But as you read the book, she's self-focused. She's vulgar. She claims a a pseudo-spirituality by invoking God every once in a while, mixed in with self-indulgent self-descriptions, such as one she has on one of her websites, like, quote, I worship coffee like a deity, and I think vodka with soda is one of the greatest inventions of the last decade. Very self-indulgent, very self-focused. She's highly inspirational to women who find truth and find meaning in themselves because that's what her goal is. And from the world, we would understand that. And we're not surprised. But once again, it's taking the church by storm. And once again, every women's group on the planet, it seems, is reading through Girl, Wash Your Face. The subtitle of her book tells it all. Stop believing the lies about who you are so you can become who you were meant to be. This is nothing more than motivational. Jesus exists to elevate me heresy. That's all it is. She certainly has some useful and interesting advice, but she is hardly the example of godliness that we would find in Titus chapter 2. She's certainly not the example of godliness we would find in Proverbs 31. She opens the book by talking about urination. That's how she is going to be godly and going to be inspirational to us. But by her own admission, she tries to make her career first while not having enough time for her husband and her children. She's nothing more than a female Joel Osteen who's a motivational speaker and writer using God as a minor character. Because if you read through her book, and I read most of it this weekend, the main character in her book is you, that you find meaning in you. Certainly not in having had your sins washed away by the good shepherd. Certainly not in being in right standing before a holy God looking forward to an eternity with him. This is very, very different than the tremendous spiritual intimacy that Jesus has promised to his sheep. It's very different. In verse 14, once again, Jesus repeats, I am the good shepherd. But but now he's going to elevate what this means to the sheep and frankly to him to a whole different level. 
It's not just that the sheep know his voice in salvation, that he's given his life for the sheep, and certainly that would be enough. But he's promised so much more to the sheep. He says, I know my own, and my own know me. The mutual knowledge of the shepherd and the sheep, it's already been stated in verses 3 and 4, and now it's reemphasized at an even deeper level. This is what ensures that the sheep follow the shepherd and only their shepherd. But we have to make this distinction. This is not just, I know about my own, and my own know about me. Neither is this some secret relationship to Jesus that we have to look under every rocker in the latest trendy book to find. Jesus knows you, and you know him. This is the same idea, the same word meaning used in the Old Testament to speak of intimate love between a husband and a wife. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Don't make Sarah's young mistake of trying to reduce our relationship to Christ to some romantic notion. That's not the point. The romance of a human marriage is representative of the union and closeness between the couple. Knowing someone in relational intimacy, it speaks of exclusivity. it It speaks of distinctiveness. It speaks of a superior and only relationship of its kind. This is exactly the type of relationship that God describes as having with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He's speaking of Israel in Amos 3, verse 2. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's not somehow that God doesn't have knowledge about other nations, but only Israel is known. Only with her does he have this close, intimate covenant relationship. Yes, Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Yes, he died to please and to obey the Father. Yes, Jesus died to glorify the grace of the Father by offering salvation to mankind. But make no mistake, and and maybe correct your thinking here, salvation is not so much that you gave your heart to Christ. Salvation is that Christ gave his heart to you. Don't tell your children, do you want to give your heart to Christ? Tell them, do you want to receive the fact that Christ has given his heart to you? There's a difference. In your flesh, you don't want to give your heart to Christ. And so Christ gave his heart. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus describes how he feels about his sheep, again, portraying himself as a shepherd. In Luke 15, he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The good shepherd rejoices over his sheep, over your salvation. He goes on to say of this shepherd who is himself, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Do you understand that your salvation brought great, tremendous joy to the shepherd because he's given you his heart? And he wants to be in fellowship with you. No, he doesn't need you. No, he doesn't need your fellowship. No, he doesn't need your intimacy, but he desires it. In the same three-part parable, Jesus tells of a woman finding a lost coin who rejoices with her neighbors when she finds it, and of a father finding his lost son who rejoices when he finds him. At whatever moment you thought you were deciding to give your heart to Christ, Christ had already given his heart to you. He had already made that decision. You belong to him. You belong to him. And in fact, it's very important to understand that Jesus said that the good shepherd owns the sheep. He owns them. And soon you'll be united with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And according to 1 Thessalonians 4, you will always be with the Lord. He will never let you out of his sight. Never again. You don't need to read someone else's false impressions of Jesus Christ to gain an understanding of, that you have an intimate relationship with him. You don't have to pursue it. You possess it already. And yes, you pursue a relationship like you pursue any other relationship, but not to achieve it. It's already yours. Your intimacy with Christ is already there. It is already done. What a gift. What a gift. The good shepherd is given three gifts. He's given the gift of the shepherd's life. There's the gift of the shepherd's heart. And finally, the gift of the shepherd's choice. 
the gift of the shepherd's choice. Now, verse 16 is almost like an oh, by the way. It's this little parenthesis that's sort of stuck in there. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. He says he has other sheep not of this sheepfold, not of Israel, which by process of elimination means Gentile sheep. The the prophet Isaiah has already alluded to this in Isaiah 56, verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, as we've said before, this is not to say that the goal is to erase the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Those distinctions remain. Nevertheless, as one people of God, because all people, whether Jew or Gentile, who follow the good shepherd are all his sheep because they have the same shepherd. But I want to take a moment to really look at the nuances here. There's some important theological implications for us to to grasp. And I think it, it helps our walk with the Lord. It helps our closeness to the Lord. He says in verse 16, he says that he has other sheep, not of this fold. He has them. This is a verb form meaning something that is the case at this moment. He has other sheep when he said this. At that moment, prior to Pentecost, prior to the gospel being spread, going forth to the world, the sheep are already identified. Did you catch that? Now, if Jesus believed that those who come to faith in Christ make this choice fully themselves, then logically he would have to say, I have other potential sheep, or I hope I have sheep. Because if it's all their choice, logically there is the theoretical possibility of no one choosing Christ. So he has them at this moment. But look at this detail. And they will listen to my voice. They will listen to my voice. This elucidates what we sometimes call the doctrine of irresistible grace. That all who are God's chosen sheep will come to faith in Christ when the call comes. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. You mean to say that all who will be saved were pre-identified? That's what the Lord is saying. And since he's always consistent with himself, he also said it about 25 years later to the Apostle Paul. Paul was beginning his ministry in Corinth, and and a few believed, and a few had gotten saved, but the the atmosphere there was hostile to to the Lord, and Paul wasn't excited about that, and so the Lord encouraged him. Acts 18, beginning in verse 9, And the Lord, this is Christ, said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen to this. For I have many in this city who are my people. Wait a minute. Jesus has just identified people yet to be converted who belong to him. He's already identified his sheep. Several chapters earlier in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch in the region of Pisidia. Uh, preaching the gospel. And on one particular day, they were preaching to the Gentiles. And we've pointed this out before, but I want to give you another detail. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And we've mentioned this verse a lot. This is, a, this is an important verse for us. But I want to add a little detail because the grammar here is, is everything. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The the Greek grammar for believed here means a one-time act that happened right then and right there at that moment. But the Greek construction of the verb appointed is very important. It's a perfect verb. and, And the basic usage is it means that it was an event that was initiated in the past and now has consequences in the present moment. By the way, it's also a passive verb, meaning that someone else did it. Someone else did the appointing, and the person receiving it didn't do anything except receive it. Thus, it cannot be as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. If that were the case, they would both be present tense. It's not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It's as many as were appointed to eternal life. Perfect verb, in the past, carrying on into the present, now present tense, believe. The appointment to eternal life happened by God to the elect, and then they came to faith. 
And it's not that God looked down the corridors of time to see who would choose him. He looked down the corridors of time as the good shepherd to eagerly await the moment when those he had chosen would come to faith. And he has chosen you for no other reason ever given in Scripture except one time there's a reason given, and that is love. That's the only reason. And this understanding, I, I think, is such a major part of your confidence, a major part of your joy in the Lord to believe anything less than the fact that Christ came after you, he sought you. This is to lower God and to elevate yourself, which never inspires great faith, never inspires great assurance. A lower God, a lesser God, doesn't inspire great faith. He is the good shepherd who has chosen and called and sealed his sheep. Now, we don't talk about the doctrine of election because it's some hobby horse we like to ride. We assert the doctrine of election because the Bible is saturated with it, and it is grace par excellence. I mean, election is the demonstration of God's sovereignty and kindness. And if I could put it this way, election not only demonstrates God's goodness, it demonstrates his godness. It is who he is. And listen, those who adamantly choose to not believe the doctrine of election You're up against three major challenges. And God bless you for this, but you have some major hills to climb here. The first one is that they form this belief based on a human notion of compassion before seeing what Scripture actually says. That that certainly a loving God would never send someone to hell. That's a preconceived notion of God defining God in human terms and forming a view of God based on my opinion. And really all that is is that's tantamount tantamount to refusing to believe the Bible. There's a second major mountain. They form this belief based on the construction of a fantasy category. And that category is a person who is not elect but desperately wishes to be saved. I would challenge you to find me one example or one teaching about that type of person anywhere in Scripture. You will not find it. Listen, Those who are not elect don't want to be saved. They don't want Christ. Look at the man languishing, waiting for judgment in Luke 16 in the fires of Hades. He doesn't beg to be let out. He simply begs to have his family warned. And the third mountain that those who adamantly choose not to believe the doctrine of election must overcome is that Scripture overwhelmingly teaches that God elects his people overwhelmingly teaches this. God is an electing God from the beginning all the way to the end. And let me see if I can elucidate this for you because this is the, this is the God who has chosen you from eternity past and has known you intimately. He knew your name and your name and your name and your name. And he knew exactly the moment that you would be born, the moment you would come to faith in Christ, the moment you will die, the moment he will first see you. He has it all. Our God is an electing God all the way from the beginning. Let me see if I can demonstrate this. In in creation, God made exactly what he wanted the way he wanted it. He didn't just throw a bunch of stuff out there and say, well, I hope it turns out. He elected to make an earth. He elected to make it round and not square. He elected to make everything exactly the way it is. Ever since creation, everything in human history has been ordered, has been permitted by God. Isaiah 46.10 says he declares, quote, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, that everything is ordained. If the Bible says everything is ordained, but your salvation is not, then everything is not ordained. God raised up and chose Pharaoh for judgment. According to Romans 9, why? To demonstrate God's wrath. You mean God chose to judge somebody just to make himself look good? Yes. Accept it and believe it. In the Old Testament, God gathered every nation together and said, would you send in your applications to see who would be my chosen nation? No, he didn't do that. He chose a nation for himself, a nation that didn't yet exist. And he not only chose that nation, but he formed that nation. And he said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And, and why did he choose Israel? The next two verses tell us it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you. That's the reason. And chose you. For you are the fewest of all. 
but it is because the Lord loves you. That was his choice. Psalm 105 verse 43 calls Israel the chosen ones. Psalm 135 verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his own possession. God is an electing God. Jesus Christ himself in Luke chapter 9 is called my chosen one. The holy angels are called in 1 Timothy 5 21, the elect angels. The New Testament believers are called God's chosen ones, often using the Greek word eklektos, where we get election. They're chosen. In Colossians 3.12, 1 Corinthians 1.27, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, 2 Timothy 2.10, Titus 1.1, 1 Peter 1.1, 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 5.13, Revelation 17.14. The church is defined even as the community of the chosen. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us, the church, in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Paul encouraged the Thessalonian believers at the beginning of his first letter, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. As a matter of fact, a good chunk of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, Titus, and 1 Peter essentially open their letters with references to the doctrine of election. Paul told the Thessalonians in the second letter in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, and listen to this, through the sanctification by the Spirit, that comes first, and belief in the truth, that comes second. 1 Peter 1, 2 speaks of the elect as those who were chosen, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is not passive foreknowledge that somehow God elected those who would choose him. He chose those that he elected and he elected those that he chose. If we're going to be passive with God, that means that God's decision is based on man's decision, which now gives mankind sovereignty, which means God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, God is not God. That's why we say that election shows the godness of God. Romans 9 emphasizes in no uncertain terms the elective actions of God. Two babies in a womb, Jacob and Esau, the twins, and God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And now we might say, well, I can't accept that because that seems so unfair. Well, in that same chapter, the Apostle Paul answers you and says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? I mean, it's everywhere. The God who is called the Most High God, the ruler of heaven, the ruler of earth, the Almighty who works all things according to his will, the heavenly potter who shapes mankind according to his own purposes, some to be vessels of mercy, some to be vessels of wrath. To say that he would do anything other than elect and choose his own sheep is to deny him the sovereignty, which by definition is always his. It's always his. As a matter of fact, his choice of us, you ready for this? His choice of us is the reason you're sitting here this morning. It is the reason we gather to worship. If I made a free will choice outside the sovereign control of God, then I should really be grateful to myself as much as to him. That after our worship service, we should have a big lunch to celebrate how smart we all are to choose Jesus. That I thank God for the cross of Christ and I thank myself for being intelligent enough to figure out that I needed Christ. I think about sometimes how amazing it must have been for this young Shulamite maiden recorded in Song of Songs. How amazing it must have been for her to find that the young man that she loved and cherished, they went on walks together. There's a record of them going into the forest and laying down and pretending that that the forest is their new house when they get married and saying that we're sitting on couches, but it's really just just the, the, the heather in the bushes of the, of the forest. And they spent this time together in a very pastoral scene with the sheep and the goats around. He gave her his love. In Song of Songs, chapter one, she says, I'm unworthy. Don't look at me. I'm not beautiful. I'm not worthy of your love. And he says, oh, you are the most beautiful. You are the most worthy. 
And she protests and she says, I've been outside working. My brothers make me work. My mom makes me work and I look terrible. And he says, I don't care. I choose you. And this young man that they would go around in the wilderness together and hang out, how amazing must it have been in chapter 3 to see this young man who set his heart on this woman that he would bring her to himself showing who he really was the glorious King Solomon of Israel with wealth and power and mighty men who chose her. And in the same way that this unworthy bride was chosen by the king, you, beloved Christian, you've been chosen by the king of kings. You've been chosen by him. And in fact, there's a record of our union Revelation 19, beginning in verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, that's given, granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The word invited It's a Greek word which means to be called. That's the real Jesus calling. Jesus calling you to be unified with him, to be one with him, to be part of the bride of the Lamb of God. Why? Because he gave his life for you. He gave his heart to you, and he's chosen you. I like that Jesus a lot more than Sarah Young's. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is so clear, so easy to understand, so poignant. Our good shepherd, how we long to meet him face to face. How we long to see him in all of his glory. How we long to sit at his feet. How we long to embrace him how we long to sing and dance and shout and rejoice in his presence. For now, you have given us the faith to believe in him, to know him. He knows us. We know him. We sing beautiful songs to him. We read his word. We think thoughts of him. We pray to him. We are so thankful for our good shepherd, for Jesus Christ. But Lord, there may be those here who are not yet sheep. Those who are still in the category of the hired hand or the wolf, even. I pray that they would sense and hear the call of Christ. That they would repent. That you would give them the faith to believe. That you would open their eyes of their hearts, even now, to trust Jesus Christ. He is the only good shepherd. He is the only true vine. He is the only true bread he is the way he is the truth and he is the life and no one will come to you except through him and so it is my prayer that every person in this room every person in this building would know the good shepherd also that he might build his kingdom for which he has set his affection on us and we pray these things for his sake amen